electronic smoking devices may not be plugged into any power source, including USB ports and AC outlets. We'll be coming through the aisle now for our final safety checks. We appreciate you choosing America. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy our one hour and 49 minute flight to Tucson. just flew back from sunny and hot Green Valley, Arizona, and boy, are my arms tired. This episode may sound a little different, as it was written and partially recorded underneath the shadow of the Santa Rita Mountains in my father's backyard. Flying to Tucson is tough, because there isn't a direct flight from Detroit to the Tucson airport, so the choices are either flying to Phoenix and asking my dad to make a four-hour round trip or having at least one stopover at a random airport. This time, it was Dallas-Fort Worth. Thank you for visiting the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. The Dallas-Fort Worth Airport is a giant four-section airport that requires a tram to get around in. We got off at 7.37 with 40 minutes to get to our next gate. We took a tram from Section C to Section A, only to find out that they were moving our departure gate back to Section C. After a bit of a delay, we were on our way to Tucson. By the time we arrived at my father's home, we'd been going for nearly 12 hours. The three-hour time change and time spent crammed in a tiny seat on two different airplanes left me with a nasty headache. Luckily for me, my dad had some Tylenol in the medicine cabinet. After asking Tyler to open the bottle for me, I realized that even at 15, the safety features on a bottle of medicine can be tricky and frustrating. It got me thinking about why and when companies began adding extra security measures on their bottles. It turns out that we have the 1980s to thank for that. Our first 1980s-themed episode introduced us to a bully named Ken McElroy, Let's see where the next bizarre 80s story leads us. Episode 44, The Chicago Tylenol Murders. It was a Tuesday evening, September 28th of 1982 and 12-year-old Mary Kellerman of Elk Grove Village, Illinois, was still not feeling right. She'd been battling a cold and sore throat for two days, and it didn't seem to be getting any better. The next morning, her parents decided to keep her home from school. They hated seeing her in so much discomfort, and offered her two extra-strength Tylenol to help ease the pain. Before returning to bed, Mary went to the bathroom. Her father heard a thump and went to check on his daughter. He called out to her, but there was no response, so he opened the door and found her lying on the floor, unresponsive. Paramedics did everything they could think of and rushed her to a nearby medical center. She was pronounced dead at 10 a.m. Wednesday, the 29th. Around noon that same day, 27-year-old Adam Janis drove to the Our Lady of the Wayside Church to pick up his daughter from daycare. An oncoming cold had kept him home from work that day. Before returning home, Adam stopped at a local Jewel Food Store supermarket and picked up a few things, including a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol and some flowers for his wife. He arrived home where his wife was making lunch. Adam wasn't feeling right. His chest was tight and sore, 
He took two Tylenol and went to his bedroom to lay down. He came stumbling back into the kitchen a short while later and collapsed. Paramedics attempted to resuscitate, but his heart wouldn't start back up. Adam's wife left her two kids with a neighbor who watched as their dad was loaded into an ambulance. Adam's wife phoned his brother Stanley and his wife Teresa, who quickly rushed to the hospital to be there for the family. Shortly after their arrival, Adam Janus was pronounced dead. 25-year-old Stanley Janus and his 19-year-old wife Teresa went back to Adam's home stricken with grief. It had all happened so fast. Neighbors brought over coffee and offered aspirin since both had a headache and Stanley suffered from chronic back pain. They declined the offer for aspirin, stating that there was a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol on the counter. At 6 p.m., the local fire department received a second call to the Janus home. Both Stanley and Teresa were unresponsive and rushed to the same hospital as Adam. By 8.15 p.m., Stanley was dead, and doctors were doubtful that Teresa would make it as they kept her alive on life support. 27-year-old Mary Renner of Winfield, Illinois, had just given birth to her fourth child, a son named Joshua, earlier in the week. On the evening of Wednesday the 29th, she complained of a nagging headache and took two extra-strength Tylenol. Not long after, she collapsed. Meanwhile, in Elmhurst, 31-year-old Mary McFarlane was working her shift at the Illinois Bell Telephone Store in the Yorktown Shopping Center. She complained to a co-worker about a splitting headache and reached for her recently purchased bottle of extra-strength Tylenol. Not long after, she too collapsed. 35-year-old Paula Prince worked as a flight attendant for United Airlines. After a flight from Las Vegas, she stopped at the nearby Walgreens before returning home to her near-north-side apartment. She wasn't feeling great and was scheduled for another flight out the following day. She also took extra-strength Tylenol. By early Thursday morning, as firefighters and police from neighboring communities began to try to put together the pieces, Mary McFarlane was brought to the Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove. At 3.18 a.m., she was pronounced dead on arrival. Over at Central DuPage Hospital, Mary Renner, mother of four, fought for her life until 9.03 a.m. In less than 48 hours, five people in neighboring communities had died out of the blue of unknown causes. On Friday, Teresa Janis, who never regained consciousness, was taken off of life support, becoming the sixth official victim. Later that evening, Paula Prince's friend and sister stopped by her apartment. They hadn't been able to reach her and were concerned. They had every right to be, as they found her on the floor of her bathroom, where she died two days earlier near a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol. Prince became the seventh and final victim. Local doctors first blamed the individual deaths on a fast-moving viral infection. It wasn't until two friends, both firefighters in different cities, compared stories from their days that officials were able to tie the deaths to Tylenol. The bottles from the Kellerman case and Janice family were compared. Both came from the same lot, MC2880. Of the 96 remaining capsules, 10 contained cyanide. Cyanide works by combining with the hemoglobin in blood and starving the body of oxygen. 5 to 7 micrograms is considered enough to be lethal. Each capsule contained at least 65 milligrams, or roughly 65,000 micrograms. By the time officials were able to put two and two together, the last three people passed away. Warnings were quickly issued via the media and patrols using loudspeakers 
warning residents throughout the Chicago metropolitan area to discontinue the use of any and all Tylenol products. The Lot MC-2880 capsules had been manufactured at facilities in both Pennsylvania and Texas. This led detectives to believe that it was a local job, performed after the bottles had hit local store shelves. After the original five bottles tested positive for cyanide, numerous other altered bottles in the Chicago area were later found. Tylenol's manufacturer, Johnson & Johnson, sent out warnings to hospitals and distributors across the country. They also immediately halted Tylenol production and advertising. When a bottle of Tylenol containing strychnine was found in California early in October, Johnson & Johnson issued a nationwide recall. The manufacturer estimated that 31 million bottles were in circulation, with a retail value of over $100 million. Johnson & Johnson launched ad campaigns with national media outlets warning individuals to not consume any Tylenol that came in capsule form. In the same advertisements, they offered to exchange all Tylenol capsules already purchased by the public for solid tablets. A hotline was set up, and thousands of calls came pouring in from people believing that they knew someone who could have done this, or saw someone suspicious at their local supermarket or drugstore. There were even people claiming to have done it. Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeremy Margolis compared the officers running around following tips and leads to someone trying to take a drink from a fire hose. Investigators talked to people that had recently been terminated from Johnson & Johnson. It was possible that an ex-employee was upset with them and had an axe to grind. Then, on October 6th, Johnson & Johnson received an extortion letter demanding $1 million to stop the killings. The note read, Gentlemen, as you can see, it's easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is in the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I've spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account number 84-49-597 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. The note was signed by Robert Richardson, but thanks to fingerprints on the letter, the police quickly traced the letter back to a man named James Lewis from New York City. He was finally arrested in December after a second note was sent to the White House, threatening Ronald Reagan's life. A trial was held, and he was convicted of extortion. His attorneys claimed that he only wrote the letter to focus the attention of the authorities on his wife's former employer. He denies his involvement to this day. He served 13 years of his 20-year sentence and was released in 1995. Some investigators believe Lewis to be a scam artist or an opportunist, looking to make a buck off of the tragedy or get somebody else in trouble. Others were certain it was him. Throughout the years of investigations, they'd never been able to put him in the city at that time. There was no evidence tying Lewis to Chicago or the murders. The only thing that anyone knew for sure was that the person or persons involved had successfully brought the United States economy to its knees. It was what some would consider the first case of domestic terrorism a term they didn't even have yet in the 1980s. The second serious lead led to the investigation of a man named Roger Arnold. 
A bar owner reported overhearing a conversation Arnold was having. He was quickly cleared of the killings, but due to the media attention, Arnold had a nervous breakdown. In the summer of the following year, Arnold waited in the bar's parking lot hoping to shoot the bar owner for what he'd done. Arnold mistook another man, John Stanisha, a father of three, for the owner, shooting and killing him point-blank. He served 15 of his 30-year sentence for second-degree murder before he was released. That same year, 1983, the FBI asked Chicago Tribune columnist Bob Green to publish the address and grave location of Mary Kellerman. They set up round-the-clock surveillance on the home and cemetery, hoping that it would lure in whoever had carried out the murders. Nothing came of it. A woman from Illinois named Lori Dan poisoned and shot a number of people in May of 1988. She was considered a suspect for a while, but the police couldn't make any connections to the events six years prior. Nearly 30 years later, as the investigation was reopened, the FBI requested DNA samples from Unabomber Ted Kaczynski. Kaczynski denied having ever possessed potassium cyanide. They knew they were grasping at straws at this point, but the first four Unabomber crimes had occurred in and around Chicago from 1978 to 1980. His parents also had a home in nearby Lombard, Illinois, where he stayed occasionally. But again, nothing. Back in 1983, before the dust had even settled, hundreds of copycat attacks involving over-the-counter medications were happening around the United States. The Tylenol murders also put a damper on Halloween in 1982. Poison candy had long been a concern in the back of people's minds. Those fears were renewed and increased after the deaths. Numerous towns and communities discouraged trick-or-treating, and grocery stores from coast to coast reported that candy sales were down more than 20%. In the aftermath of the Chicago Tylenol murders, Johnson & Johnson was mostly applauded for its handling of the crisis. It worked hand-in-hand -hand with the Chicago Police Department, the FBI, and the FDA. The company's market share collapsed from 35% to 8% immediately following the incident but rebounded quickly when in November they released capsules in a new, triple-sealed package. Eventually, capsules were replaced with a solid caplet, made in the shape of a capsule but without the ability to be pulled apart. The cyanide murders led most pharmaceutical, food, and consumer product industries to develop tamper-resistant packaging. In personal-use products, tamper-evident product packaging is always present these days. Maybe it's the breakable plastic ring on soft drinks, water, or milk jugs. Individually sealed granola bars or fruit snacks. Whenever you see a package with plastic wrappers and linings or various stamps and seals, you can know it all started with the Chicago Tylenol murders. By 1986, when three more deaths occurred, product tampering was turned into a federal crime. In one case, a New York woman died after ingesting extra-strength Tylenol capsules laced with cyanide. In the state of Washington, a woman named Stella Nickel laced Excedrin capsules in five different bottles, leading to the deaths of her husband Bruce and a woman named Susan Snow. Nickel was convicted in May of 1988 and sentenced to 90 years in prison, making her the first to be found guilty of the new federal product tampering laws. Also in 1986, Procter & Gamble's In was recalled after a cyanide hoax occurred in Chicago and Detroit. In 1991, in Washington State, Kathleen Daniker and Stanley McHorter were killed from two cyanide-tainted boxes of Sudafed. 
FBI Special Agent John Douglas, now retired, was the pioneer in criminal profiling. If you've never watched Criminal Minds, FBI profilers are brought in when murders are committed to help local police know what kind of person they're looking for. Commonly referred to as the unsub or unknown subject, profilers can help narrow down the suspect pool. In one of his many post-retirement books, Douglas said this about the Tylenol murderer suspect, whomever it might be, although he concurred that James Lewis fit the description. You're looking for a white male in his late 20s to early 30s who would be a depressed, nocturnal loner driven by rage. He'd have bouts of severe depression and feelings of despair. He'd feel inadequate, helpless, hopeless, and impotent being at the same time convinced that society always maligned him in an unfair way. His life would be characterized by a long list of personal failures concerning education, employment, social experiences, and relationships with women of his own age and intelligence level. Some of his feelings of inadequacy could stem from a physical disability or ailment. He would gravitate towards positions of authority or pseudo-authority, such as security guard, ambulance driver, auxiliary firefighter, and would have trouble keeping his job. He could also have a military background, marked by behavioral problems and psychiatric treatment. The unsub fits the assassin type, constantly thinking about killing, but never laying his hands on his intended victim. He committed this type of crime as a result of a precipitating stressor he suffered in mid-September of 1982, such as the loss of a job, wife, girlfriend, or possibly a parent. His M.O. suggests a not particularly organized or methodical offender, but rather a sloppy and distracted personality. This would be reflected in the car he drives, possibly a police-type large Ford sedan, which would represent strength and power, both of which he lacks. Though it can't be completely excluded that he is a disgruntled employee or former employee of Johnson & Johnson, McNeil Consumer Products, or the targeted drugstores, it is more likely that the offender was motivated by general rage and resentment against a society that had wronged or ignored him. Likewise, the choice of Tylenol might or might not be significant. In all probability, he would have written letters concerning his perceived wrongs to people in positions of power. The feeling of having been ignored gave him a reason to escalate. The offender would also keep a scrapbook, diary, or journal of some kind detailing his activities which would reflect his feelings of inferiority. James Lewis remains the most likely candidate in an ongoing investigation that's approaching its 40th anniversary. It's hard to find any information on the man and his loyal wife, Leanne. If still alive, he'd be around 76. He has a website called CyberLewis.com that was updated as recently as February of 2022. Lewis was arrested in 1973 and 1974 for fighting with his stepfather while also spending time in various mental institutions. In 1978, he was accused of dismembering a 72-year-old man who had hired him as an accountant. Charges were eventually dropped after the court received word that evidence had been obtained illegally. While in Chicago during the early 80s, Lewis was known to have used at least 18 different aliases and posed as a freelance writer, real estate salesman, computer assistant, and importer of Indian tapestries. Some considered him to be a genius. He's been accused of rape as recently as 2004, but again, the charges were dropped after the victim refused to testify. The FBI and Chicago's finest detectives never got along when the case was in its infancy, and no one has been able to come up with enough evidence 
to convict anyone. It's one of the biggest whodunits in our nation's history. Sadly, we may never know. The good that came out of it was the extra steps we all have to take when opening a bottle of medicine or a bottle of water. Perhaps the madman was trying to teach a lesson, but it shouldn't have taken seven lives in the process. What do you think? Did James Lewis get away with murder? If you're old enough, do you remember the hysteria that surrounded the Tylenol murders? Let me know. Curator135 at gmail.com I was only five in 1982, and when I asked my father, he didn't seem to remember too much about it. The 1980s were wacky, and so far we've covered two crazy stories, the Ken McElroy killing and the Tylenol murders. We'll feature another strange story in the 1980s series coming up next. The decade that gave us Pac-Man and Don Johnson has a bounty of interesting tales to tell. My apologies for the episodes becoming a little more sporadic. Summertime is when I have the least responsibilities, but seem to be the busiest for some reason. Darn kids. Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting the show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. It really helps. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three. of an emergency, leave all belongings and proceed to the closest usable exit. If needed, oxygen masks will drop from an overhead compartment. Remain seated with your seatbelt fastened and pull the mask down to start the flow of oxygen. Place the mask over your nose and mouth and put the elastic band over your head. Pull the straps to tighten and breathe normally. You should always put on your mask before helping others. Oxygen is flowing even if the bag does not inflate.